This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Now, in this seminar, we're going to be going through those three pillars. Do you remember what they were again? Scriptures, Savior, and Spirit Prophecy. So we're going to be touching on those three for a little bit. And we're going to give you four evidence, four evidences why you can trust the Scriptures, specifically the Scriptures. So that's what we're going to be going over first. Number one, we're going to look at the effect of the Bible on human literature. Number two, we're going to look at the Bible and its internal consistency. Number three, we're going to look at the proof of history. And number four, prophecy. Now, for those of you who have ever wondered, how do I know that I can trust the Bible? I'm going to give you some basic facts. Now, I usually do a whole seminar on this, and I have seven reasons why. But in this particular seminar, we don't have much time, so I'm just going to give you four. So let's go over the first one, the effect on human literature. So this is the scriptures, the effect on human literature. Did you know that the Bible has been translated in 400 languages, portions in 2,500 languages? The Gideons have distributed 560,000 Bibles. This is of 2,000, by the way. More authors, secular authors, Christian authors, whatever religion, have quoted the Bible more than any other work. And the Bible is the all-time best-selling book. Did you know that? Now, check this out. This right here is a list from Wikipedia of all the best-selling books of all time. Number one is The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. First published in 1859. Does anyone see how many have sold over the course of, let's just say, 160 years? Anyone know? About 200 million, right? Now you look at the next best-selling book of all time, and you see The Lord of the Rings. They've sold 150 million. Number three, The Hobbit has sold over 100 million. Then we have a book from China, on over 100 million, and it was printed in 1750. That's about close to 300 years, about 250, 300 years. And then Agatha Christie's book, And Then There Were None, sold over 100 million. Now, here's fascinating. Go to number 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You'll actually see Steps to Christ down there. Steps to Christ actually has sold about 50 to 100 million, they say. And that's on Wikipedia. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis is number six of all time. We have a few other notable books. Da Vinci Code made it as well. And so as you can see, there's a number of books that have sold. Now let me ask you a question. Does anyone know how many Bibles are sold just in one year? No, that, that's, pretty, that's a pretty high number. Not, not exactly, but you know, way to shoot high. Now, Look at this. A Tale of Two Cities, the best-selling book of all time, has sold over 200 million books. But how long has it taken to sell 200 million books? Yeah, close to 150 years. Now, the Bible, according to this, this is Answers.com, BibleAnswers.org as well. This one, they ask the question, how many Bibles are sold each year? According to BibleStudy.org, 100 million Bibles are sold each year worldwide. The New Yorker confirms that it is the best-selling book in history and outsells all other books every year. Now do you know why the Bible is not allowed to be on the New York Times bestseller list? It would trump everything else. Nothing else would be close to it. That's why when I read the best-selling book, New York Times bestselling list, understand the Bible is the real number one. It just can't be on there. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at reason number two for the scriptures. Reason number two. 
And by the way, I see my assistant in the back. That's Alyssa. She's the girl with the stickers you want to find for if you're going to attend all six. I'll be talking about that later on. Internal consistency. Internal consistency. The Bible is a collection of 40 authors written over a span of 1,500 years, written on the two most controversial topics, religion and politics, yet the Bible never contradicts. Have you ever been to Starbucks and have just decided to randomly talk to someone there about religion or politics? See how many people you can get to agree with each other. Pro-life, pro-choice, whatever controversial topic you want to bring up, you will find that it's very hard for people to agree with religion and politics, and it's interesting because the Bible doesn't contradict. Now let's go ahead and look at the proof of history, and this is where we're going to get some real hard evidence, some archaeological evidence as well. Proof of history. Did you know that the Bible has 5,600 New Testament Greek manuscripts that exist that back it up? The Bible has over 10,000 Latin manuscripts and about 9,300 early manuscripts. There are over 25,000 manuscripts that support the Bible. Does anyone know the next book that has the most amount of supporting material? Homer's Iliad, that's correct. Do you know how many? 643. So we have the Bible with 25,000 manuscripts that support it. Then you have Homer's Iliad with 643. So as you can see, the Bible trumps everything else. Now, what I like about history is we get a look at archaeology. We get a look at some of the findings, and we're going to be doing that this afternoon. I want to read a couple of quotes here. The first one is by J.O. Kindleman. He's a scholar in the realm of archaeology. He says this, listen carefully. Of the hundred of thousands of artifacts found by archaeology, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, one phrase, one cause, one sentence, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. Did you get that? Of everything that has been found by archaeology, there has yet to be one thing found that contradicts the Bible record. Now, sometimes they will say, oh, Jericho or Sodom and Gomorrah, we've never found that before. We've never seen it. But that's because time hasn't allowed us to find it yet. And then they find it sometime later, and they realize that the biblical record is correct. Another quote by Hugh Williams. Listen to this, Hugh Williams. He's from Oxford University. Here in the United States, many of you know, we have our top schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale. In England, their top schools are Cambridge and Oxford. He's from Oxford University. He says, to ignore the historical bedrock of the Bible seems nothing less than perverse. Now, go in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 40. So go in your Bibles, everyone. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 19 and verse 40. Luke 19 and verse 40. Luke chapter 19, verse 40. And when you are there, please say amen. Okay. The Bible says, And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I like this passage because I believe that we as God's people need to be doing more and sharing the truth with others. But because we are not, guess, guess what's sharing the truth with others? The rocks. The rocks are crying out. One of the 
big rocks that they found in 1993 is called the Ekron Inscription. The Ekron Inscription. Now, go in your Bibles to Joshua 13, verse 3. Joshua 13, verse 3. And this one is pretty fascinating. I don't have time to go over everything. Joshua 13, verse 3. And we're going to be looking now at some fascinating facts in the Bible. I don't have one of these... I have a handheld, so it's hard for me to go back and forth. But if you can go to Joshua 13 and verse 3, there's an interesting passage here that we're going to be looking at, and it matches the historical record. Joshua 13 and verse 3. And are you all there? All right, and I think I'll have my wife help me. She can help read for me since I don't have this. From Sihor, which is before Egypt, even unto the borders of Ekron northward, which is counted to the Canaanite, five lords of the Philistines, the Gazathites, and the Ashdathites, and the Ascalonites, and the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Avites. For many years, many historians have found the biblical record as false. They said, we have found and identified these other kingdoms, but for Ekron, we don't see that exists. Well, it wasn't until 1993 that they found this Ekron inscription. Archaeologist Seymour Gittin of the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research and of Trude Hebrew University in Jerusalem, they found this, this Ekron inscription that verifies the biblical record of Ekron. Now, some people say, well, what about these two? Maybe you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah and Jericho. Now, for those of you who like looking at Bible and archaeology, there's a website I have for you. You want to go to this website right here, BibleArchaeology.org. So write this down for those of you who are interested in Bible and archaeology, BibleArchaeology.org, and you can find a lot of fascinating things that are discovered on a weekly basis. In fact, they have a sign-up sheet. They go out and they, they do some excavations, and they send you an email if something is found. Now, it wasn't until 1973 that solid evidence was found in in finding Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can read about it in this article. I don't have time to go over all of it. If you go in your Bible to Genesis 19, verse 24, I have it on the screen, but if you want to see it in Genesis 19, verse 24, there's an interesting part in Genesis 19, verse 24. It says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom, Gomorrah, sulfur, and if you have the King James, it says brimstone, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It's interesting because in 1973, when they confirmed and found Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what they found? They found sulfur, which is to my left, and then they found petroleum deposits. It's interesting. In fact, this here is a, what they call, this is what brimstone actually is. So this is a picture of what brimstone is, and all brimstone is is sulfur rocks. That's all it is. If you look up what brimstone is, it's just sulfur and the fascinating things about these rocks, I actually saw a video of it. I didn't know if I was going to have the ability to play the video for you, but I was, I was looking at the video. And if you put a lighter to this thing, this thing just lights up. And the flame that it, it emits is blue. It's this, dark, it's this light blue color showing how flammable this thing is. And this is the only place in the world, in Sodom and Gomorrah, that you will find these sulfur deposits, 96% of these rocks are all sulfur. If you go anywhere else in the world, you may find some sulfur deposits, but it's maybe only 40% sulfur, 50% sulfur at the most. But here in Sodom and Gomorrah, the valleys that they found, 
these brimstone rocks is basically one huge flammable rock. It's pretty fascinating. And Jericho, what about Jericho? This here is an aerial view of looking down at what they believe was South Jericho, the trenches. And it has been excavated a number of times in 1930s, 50s, in 1997 from the Palestinian government. They did another archaeological excavation. And Dr. Wood, he's the guy on the right there, he is holding on to what they believe is one of the walls that they found that have crumbled down. It was made from a type of mud rock brick, and they believe that this is accurate with with um, Jericho. Now, here's the fascinating part. When these Italian archaeologists went and they searched this, this, what they believed was Jericho, they began to publish reports and say, well, we don't believe that this may be Jericho because we found that the walls, that they weren't just crumbled, but they were engulfed in fire. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you read the account from the Bible, the children of Israel, God was the one who tumbled the walls, but do you know what the Israelites then did? They burned it with fire. And so Dr. Wood came, he showed them, and he, he, he said, you're actually confirming the biblical report or the account. So he, he said, you guys are actually confirming it. Now, here's another interesting part about this. You know what else they also found in this, what they believe was Jericho? They found these jars, These jars were full to the brim of wheat. Here's something also interesting. At that time, if you were going to have a siege, does anyone know what a siege is? If you're going to take over a city, does anyone know how a siege worked? Okay, you would surround the city, and you know what you would do? You would starve them out. Do you know how long sieges took? Two years, three years, you know, long periods of time. You basically were in the business of starving them out, and they would just engage in a bunch of words with each other. Some, you know, as you know, some of the stories, they'd throw bread at each other, and they would just yell at each other. But there wasn't really actual battle taking place. Now, when researchers found this, and they looked and found these jars of clay, they found wheat full to the brim. Now, why is that important? Right. If, you, if Jericho was destroyed, which they believe it was, they saw that it was destroyed, how in the world could there be full jars of wheat? And they realize, okay, well, looks like this siege was very short. Maybe seven days? Is that what it could be? One of the best archaeological findings of all time happened to also be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, again, this is, we're talking about the importance of literature, the importance of, of what you and I believe in. And here we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, there was a goat herder. His name was Muhammad. And he was, sh- uh, he was shepherding some goat, and one of the goats went inside of this cave right here. This is the actual cave. I don't know how the goat went in there, but he went into that cave. Muhammad was, didn't want to just run in and, and chase him down, so what Muhammad did is he threw a bunch of rocks into this cave. He heard a loud breaking noise, and he thought, I found some treasure. So what he did is, you know, he, he didn't want to get busted by his dad. So he went to his father and said, Dad... I lost a goat, but hey, bright news, I found some treasure. Now, they went to the site, they went inside, they, I heard coins, I heard treasure. They looked inside, and to his disappointment, he saw these jars of clay with no treasure. Now, really, he found the most priceless treasure on earth, but at the time, he didn't know that. He just saw a bunch of broken clay jars, and he, just, he looked inside, and it was just a bunch of paper in there. Just a bunch of scrolls. That's it. 
What they did is they got the scrolls out. There happened to be a Hebrew theologian passing through the area. It got to him. It got to the University of Jerusalem. They identified it, and they found that this was the oldest copy of the Old Testament. Does anyone know the value of the Dead Sea Scrolls today? If you were to buy it, does anyone know the value? All the money in the world, you won't be able to buy it. That's how they priced it. There are certain things they say that you cannot put a price, and when it comes to the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you had all the money in the world, you would not be able to buy the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is that important of a finding. It is the most important archaeological finding. So this young boy, Muhammad, thinking he found nothing, and he ended up finding the most, hitting the lottery times 10, right? So something interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they found it, they, they examined the text, they examined these scrolls, and they found that the Dead Sea Scrolls were just like the Old Testament that you have in your hands, minus the book of Esther, and there are reasons for that that I don't have time to get into today. But the Old Testament, what happened was the, the, the oldest documents or manuscripts that they had dated to 1100 A.D., so before, people were saying, how do you know that the Old Testament or the Bible that you're holding in your hands is accurate when it was dated 1100 A.D.? How do you know that it's something you can trust? Well, with this right here, they dated the Dead Sea Scrolls to the time of Jesus or right before, around that time, and it was, they said, about 2,000 years old. So because of that, they now were saying that now we have proof all the way spanning back to the time of Jesus, that the Old Testament that you're holding in your hands is accurate to what they found at the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's why it's so important. Now, you may ask the question, why is it so accurate? Well, let me give you the strict copying rules of the Essenes. The Essenes were the ones who wrote these scrolls. Let me show you how important or how strict their method was. The first one, not even one letter was written from memory. Now, I want you to think about it. Let's just say that I called on my friend AJ. Let's just say I called him up. And let's just say that I said, AJ, I want you to write down the proof of history. So I want you to get a piece of paper, and I want you to copy the proof of history. Did you know that he would not be able to write down T-H-E for memory? What he would have to do is look at the word for the, what's the first word, or first letter, excuse me? T. So he'd have to write down T. He can't write down H. He has to look at H again, and then he has to write down H. Now, he knows E is next, but he can't write E down. He has to look at E and then write it down. So that's the first rule. So if you're going to write the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're a part of the scenes, you have these strict rules. Number one, no word can be written, no letter could be written from memory, no, t- no two letters. The next one. The distance between each letter was measured by a single hair. So you'd have to get out a piece of hair. After you write down T, put your hair down, you measure it, and then you can write down, after you look at it, you can write down H. Okay? Next rule. Every letter of the page was counted. So after you have one whole page, you count that. Every letter of the book was counted. So let's just say you wrote the book of Genesis. Every letter was counted. Then we see that the middle letter of the Torah, can you imagine from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, the middle letter was then counted. Then the middle letter of the entire Hebrew Bible was indicated in the text. So you're following this strict rule. So let me show you something. Let's just say now that I am writing and, or I'm copying. And if I were to copy down these texts, and let's just say I copied 
1,000 words. And I look on my little sheet and I said, okay, 1,000 words, I have that correct. And then I look and I count. Okay, now I have to look at the letters. 5,000 letters. Okay, I have 5,000 letters. And then it tells me I have to count to the middle letter. And the middle letter is E. And I got A. Do you know what I would have to do? I would have to rip it up, take a bath, and then start over. That's right. And by the way, it was commonly reported that in order to even write the name Jehovah, we don't even know God's real name because they wouldn't even write God's real name. And they would have to take a bath or they would have to clean themselves before they would even write his name. That's how much they valued it. Okay, so now we went over the proof of the scriptures. Now let's go over the proof of the Savior from literature. Don't have much time. And we do have a short testimony at the end, so I want to get us through this. Let's go in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It's on the screens, but you can also go in your Bible, so you can see it in the literature in your hands. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. How do we know that Jesus is real? Acts 1, verse 3 gives us this beautiful text. What I like about Christianity, what I like about faith, what I like about Jesus, is God never asks us to believe in something that's blind. Instead, God gives us evidence, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Then we see here in Acts 1, verse 3, in order to believe in Jesus, it says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many what, everyone? Infallible proofs. So Jesus gives us a reason to believe in him. The first one I want to show you is called the Tel Dan Stili. Tel Dan Stili. Go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. This one's important. How do you know that Jesus was a real person? Well, I'm going to give you some background, some proof from history. Tell Dan Steely inscription. This is what was found by archaeologists. Now, the major Bible character in the Old Testament, the major king, I should say, is David. And we know that Jesus traces his ancestry line to David. He's known as the son of David. Uh, many people refer to him as the son of David. In Tel Dan Steely, by the way, Matthew 1 verse 17, is someone there? You're there? Okay, I'm going to have you read it for me. Okay. Oh, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, we're just going over real briefly the genealogy, but I want you to see David's name here. So we see that Jesus Christ traces his ancestry line to David. Here's something interesting, interesting about this, the Tel Dan Steely inscription. Historians thought that, that David, King David, was actually a false character, that he didn't exist. And it wasn't until 1993 and 1994 when the Tel Dan Steely existed. And on this, it talks about, it's an Aramaic it talks about the conquering of Israel, and in the conquering of Israel, they, they call Israel the house of David. So this is really important because it establishes that David was not a mythological character. He was a real character. He was king of Israel, and it even refers to him as the house of David. Now let me show you another fascinating inscription. This one is known as the Pontius Pilate inscription. Go to Matthew 27 verse 2. Matthew 27, verse 2, by the way, you can see a replica of this in Caesarea today. They have this 
um, that you can see. Matthew 27, verse 2. Thank you. Notice what it says in the Bible. Matthew 27, verse 2. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to who, everyone? Pontius Pilate. And what was his position? He was governor, right? So Pontius Pilate was governor. He was also someone who they didn't believe existed. Many historians, they said, I don't believe that Pontius Pilate was a real character until they found this. This is in the 1990s. They found this Pontius Pilate inscription. Now, the fascinating thing about this is it not only says his name, but it says that he was governor. There's also a couple of other historians. What does other literature say of Jesus, the written word? Anyone ever heard of Joseph, uh, Josephus? Josephus was a Jewish historian, was born in 37 or 38 AD. He also talks about Jesus, and you can read all about this. It's, I was trying to read some, some interesting things about it. He affirms Jesus, and he even says that he was executed by Pilate, and Josephus even says that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Here's another interesting character. Cornelius Tacitus. Does anyone know who Tacitus was? He's another historian, and he was Roman historians, the, the greatest historian of Rome, and he is someone who also hated the Jews. He couldn't stand the Jews. He couldn't stand Christ's death, but even though he couldn't stand the Jews, nor could he stand Christ, he describes Christ's death. So we see another proof from literature that Jesus indeed was a real person. Now, we went over all the main things in regards to literature. We've proven the scriptures. We've talked about the Savior. The last one is the spirit of prophecy. But before we go into the spirit of prophecy, the most important thing that we have for proof is prophecy. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says this, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. What separates God from a graven image? His ability to predict the end and from the beginning. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, God says, Tell ye and bring them near. He's referring to false gods. Yea, let them all take counsel together. Who hath declared this from the ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Beloved, the reason why you and I can have confidence not only in the Scriptures, not only in our Savior, but also because we have the spirit of prophecy. We don't have time to get into all the reasons for Ellen White being a prophet, something I enjoy doing at uh, Souls West. But let me just show you a couple of proofs as we talk about the spirit of prophecy. Here is an interesting uh, finding. I went online and I tried to find some old journal of medicine. I tried to find, I said, I want to see what, what kind of medicine were they prescribing back in the 1800s. This is from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, and I decided to look up medicinal uses of tobacco. This is what they say. Successful uses of tobacco. This is, again, from the magazine, the Royal Uses, or excuse me, the Royal Journal of Medicine. Tobacco administered externally. So if you were bit by poisonous reptiles, you would get tobacco given to you. They would issue it externally. Tobacco administered by the rectum. If you had constipation or bleeding, did you know that they would administer tobacco to you? Tobacco administered by the mouth. 
If you had a, um, excuse me, malaria or a fever, you would also have tobacco. And then if you had nasal pulps, tobacco administered by inhalation. So do you see at this time in the 1800s from the Royal Journal of Medicine, tobacco was used for medicinal purposes. This was a time when Ellen White says, there are many, many afflicted in our world with tobacco poison. But the physicians who are summoned to treat their patients under painful afflictions brought upon them by using tobacco, using do not point out the evils of it. So many physicians were administering it. They weren't pointing out the evils. It says, oh, how I wish they knew what harm they are doing to themselves by using tobacco, while at the same time they poison the Lord's free atmosphere. What is she also talking about here? Secondhand smoke, which we know that even up till the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, A lot of physicians were not seeing the importance or the dangers in secondhand smoke. And then finally, Ellen White says in Ministry of Healing, page 327, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Here's some other interesting things about Ellen White. Listen to this, George Wharton James. He says, this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books in more languages, which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. I like this prediction that Ellen White says right here. We don't have time to read everything, but she talks about really the financial crisis. You know, we're all talking about this fiscal cliff right now at the end of the year. Ellen White says this in Fundamentals of Education, page 317. Debts accumulate, and then come the closing and failure of banks. Anyone ever bank with Washington Mutual? That was my bank. If you did, you knew that it went out of business, and Chase had to buy it out that same night. It says, and then the foreclosure of mortgages. Do you know anyone who lost their house by the mortgage crisis? Ellen White's predicting this. Thousands have been turned out of unemployment. Do we have a high unemployment rate? If you're a canvasser, many times you've heard it. I don't have a job. I lost my job. Families lose their little all. They borrow and borrow, and then they have to give up their property and come out penniless. Beloved, as you can see, the reason why we can trust in the literature that we have is because of the sure word of prophecy. Now, I want to leave you with this as we close the seminar. The importance of literature. Literature has been preserved, as we can see. But literature needs to be prescribed. That means handed out. And literature also needs to be proclaimed. Did you know that we are pioneers? The reason why we exist, our mission and vision as a church was not only to have literature, but to have special literature that focused on prophecy, especially the Sabbath truth. And we were all called to be literature evangelists, to be giving it out in some way, shape, or form. Not all of us can probably be amazing at selling it, but Ellen White says that we all need to be, in some way, shape, or form, be getting this out. And that's where many are going to be tracing their, their conversion, is to the literature that we have. Right now, I have Wesley White. He's going to be coming up. He's a friend of mine. He graduated at Souls, and he is in the literature work. And I just wanted to give him a quick testimony for each of you about why did he choose literature. He could have chosen to do something else, could have chosen to be a physician. I have tremendous respect for Wesley. Wesley, why, of all things, as we close and as you can probably instruct some of our people here today, why literature? Why literature, oh, excuse me, a little loud there. Why literature evangelism? That's a good question. And in my life, I found that, you know, once I came 
to a saving knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done in my life, I wanted to do something for him. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know exactly where I was going to be placed in God's work, but I knew I wanted to do something for the Lord. And so I got an opportunity to go out and, and knock on doors at my school. And we're just passing out these magazines. And as we were doing that, that ministry, passing out little magazines, uh, we saw people's hearts touched. It was, it, was the, it was like Liberty Magazine about the Ten Commandments, right? And, and people's hearts were touched. People were crying because we came to their door and had literature to give to them. And I was like, wow, this is powerful. Uh, Bill Craig, the guy in the back, he came to our school. And he shared about like, how all these stories about literature evangelism and how powerful it is. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. But after going out myself and seeing what, what actually happens, I was convicted that that's what God wanted me to do as well. Now, there's basically three reasons why I do literature ministries. Uh, three reasons that, that I uh, continue to work in Hawaii right now, knocking on doors, uh, training young people to do uh, this work. Number one is because of the scriptures. Uh, the Bible itself tells us that, uh, the, the, that in, in Habakkuk, actually, let's, let's, let's turn there, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Uh, they'll probably go over this more later on. Uh, Habakkuk, chapter 2, looking at verse 2 and 3. We see the example of, of, of literature being used, especially in end times or for the future. Habakkuk 2 and verse 2 says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Do what? Write the vision. And make it plain upon tablets that he may run who does what? Who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but, the end, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So we see here that, that, that he instructed, God instructed Habakkuk to write these things down so that the people that, that read those things could be uh, able to run or be able to understand what was coming in the future. We have that same privilege. If you look in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, we see again the angel standing with one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth, who has a, a little book in his hand, right? And the book was, was to be uh, eaten, sweet in the mouth, and bitter in the belly, right? Who's that talking about? Anyone know? I guess we can say that, say that later, but it's talking about Adventism, right? And the great disappointment, and, and this whole movement that was going to be taking place. And so we see that the importance of, of the illustration of literature in Scripture. Number two is because it has changed my life personally. Uh, I, I've seen by, by, by how, how I've gone door to door, seeing hearts transformed, and, and not only people's hearts at the doors being transformed, but my own heart as well being lifted up to God. Going to someone's door and, and, and talking to them, knowing that I have nothing that I can say to them of myself that can convict them or convert them, but allowing myself to say, Lord, please give me the words that will touch this person's heart. And seeing a person at the door come at first, cold and hard, but as I leave that door in tears, crying, saying, thank you so much for coming to my door. I know God sent you here for a purpose. So I, it's changed my life in a, in a drastic, incredible way. I, I first came when I was 18 years old, and I, I started going door to door, and, just, and I, didn't, I didn't love it at first, I'm going to be honest. I didn't like it a whole lot. Um, but as I continued to do it, a, a love in my heart grew for sharing literature with people. I think one of the most important reasons that I do literature ministries, number three, is because of how it's going to affect uh, God's message in the last days. Um, we're told, how many of you guys have read The Great Controversy or read part of The Great Controversy? Amen. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in The Great Controversy is chapter 38, uh, The Final Warning. And in that chapter, it speaks about uh, the, the message going to all the world and the latter rain being poured out upon God's people. And we're told at that time, 
the message will go forth in a powerful way, and it will not go forth so much by arguments. How many of you guys have ever gotten to argue about with someone about you know, what we believe? Anyone? You know, the Sabbath, day of the day, whatever it might be. You, you argue about it, those things. Well, she says that in, in the last days when the latter rain is pouring upon God's people, there's not going to be so much by arguments, but it's by the Holy Spirit's power. And, and listen to why. This is page 612 in the Great Controversy. It says, the message will be carried out not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit. Now, this is why. Pay, pay close attention. The arguments have been presented. The seed has been sown, and now it will spring up and bear fruit. The publications, the what? The publications distributed by missionary workers have exerted their influence. So the reason why there's not argumentation is because the literature has been distributed. They've read that literature at the right point in time, and because of that, the way is prepared for them to accept the truth without any argument. Amen? For the latter rain to be poured out, for God's spirit to be poured out, the, the groundwork has to be laid. The seeds have to be planted. And the seeds that she specifically talks about is our literature. Amen? I believe with all my heart that Christ is coming soon. And we have a, a powerful part to play in preparing the way for his coming. Amen? So that's why I do literature ministries. Thank you, Wesley. Well, I want to thank you all for being an attentive audience. For those of you who came late, I just want to give the announcement again. If you attend all six of our literature evangelism seminars, you will receive a special Youth Rush edition or GYC edition Youth Rush bag with a, uh, we call it the Literature Evangelism Starter Set. It includes the, the cookbook we use, which is Naturally Gourmet. You can have a story time. This is a kid's book we use. And... Lessons on Love, which is Christ's Object Lessons, and we also have a DVD that we use as well. In fact, I don't know if any of you have seen these. We use these by Anchor Point Films. You get these four, and along with uh, what we call drop-downs, three steps to Christ, and a canvas. And so you will get those as part of being at our seminar. Please go ahead and uh, fill this out. Do you, what, what do you, yeah, this is uh, Alyssa. If you want to, if you're going to attend all six, Alyssa will give you information how then you can redeem this at the Souls West booth. Yes, you guys want to be able to keep these yellow pieces of paper with you. They have one white sticker on them. And each meeting, when you walk in the door, you want to show me your yellow piece of paper if you've already been here for the first meeting. And I'll go ahead and put a second sticker. So at the end, we should know, we should be able to look and see all six white stickers on your yellow piece of paper. So please keep them. I'm going to go by the honest system. Obviously, I know none of you guys are going to go out and buy your own little stickers. Hopefully not. (laughs) So if you did happen to lose your paper and you were here at the first meeting, just come and talk to me. But try to keep these with you so we can give you the stickers. All right, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for literature. We thank you so much that we have been given evidence. We have given infallible proofs. I pray, O Lord, that we will live our lives with that evidence, that we will not only be a talking sermon, but we will be a living sermon. I pray that we can take more of an active role in getting the literature, the publications before the people. So the mighty angel of Revelation 18, verse 1, the light that, that comes out that can be spread all across the world. We're sick and tired of this place. We want to see you. We want to go home. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.